Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. After about 40 hours a week of PCR and reading genetic code, I quickly discovered this was not for me. I looked up and everybody was super into it and I was not. And I said, well, this is my sign. This is not my road. Maryland has, you know, 20,000 open cyber jobs on any given day, but those are in cyber and in IT companies. Those aren't including these hospitals and local and state government in all of these things. I think I found my home. I've like bounced around from like human services to health to whatever research and I like tech. I think it's my new home. This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA-certified 8A, hub-zone, woman-owned small business specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. Good morning, Tasha Cornish. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I know cybersecurity never sleeps, but do you normally have phone calls at 6.30 a.m.? I thankfully do not. (laughs) What's your morning routine typically involve? I usually like to sleep till like 6.45 or or 7.15. I have a puppy. So either my husband and I will, or we'll get up, you know, we'll say no dibs and then uh, (laughs) we'll get up and let him out and feed him. I've been one of those people who I've been trying to nail a morning routine and I just haven't found it yet. I love that nice soft wake up. What kind of puppy do you have? He's a Shiba Inu. He is like a mini Akita. If you're familiar with the Dogecoin meme, he's like a a not fat Doge. (laughs) (laughs) and he looks like that (laughs) did you grow up wanting that type of dog how did you decide on that breed my husband has always been intrigued by them and they are the the cats of dogs so they're very neat they were very easy to train but he's very stubborn and he drives us crazy and it's definitely (laughs) his house now are you a uh, newlywed we got married in 2019 It feels like we're newlyweds, even though it's been a few years because of COVID, I think. It's like we're still going through, you know, we have a honeymoon coming up, for example. Oh, really? (laughs) When did you get married? Like what month? September. So it was like four or five months before COVID. So you were lucky to have a normal wedding. Yes. So lucky. (laughs) That's a really good test of your marriage because being together that intensely for that long... Yes. Yes. And he he lost his job right before COVID and he bought a house in our first year of marriage. Oh, wow. There was a lot going on. (laughs) Wow. So then you were both working from home? So during COVID, when COVID first started, I was running a human services nonprofit for older adults. So I was out here trying to figure out what delivering services to older adults looked like during a global pandemic and making sure everyone had enough food and medical supplies and everything they needed. So I guess you like high stress jobs. Yes. <laughs> Were you delivering in hazmat suits? What was the protocol for delivering the services? Yeah, pretty much. We'd out, you know, we used to do our work in these nice offices in an old church here in Hamden. And then it turned out to me going to people's like porches, doing it through windows. It was a lot of, a lot of changes. Are you from Baltimore? No, no, I grew up in Maine. So how did you come down to Maryland? So I moved to Maryland originally in 2010. Yep, that's right. (laughs) After I graduated from college, I moved to Rockville. I thought I wanted to do an MD PhD. So I was at the NIH, the National Eye Institute, doing a fellowship there quickly discovered that was not for me. That's a pretty big change, right? You're going to get an MD and a PhD. So you are like not just doubling down because an MD is intense in itself. You know, PhD is pretty hardcore, 
but you yeah. decide to double it and at the National Institute of Health. Yes, that was me. That was because uh, I always wanted to practice medicine. And then when I was in college, I really got into research and moving the field forward. And then after about 40 hours a week of PCR and reading genetic code for about six weeks, I quickly discovered this was not for me. I looked up and everybody was super into it and I was not. And I said, well, this is my sign. <laughs> this is not my road. What was it like to quit? Well, you quit two months in. No, I stayed. I stayed through. I could have been there for two years. I was there for about a year and two months. And then I did a master's in public health. My PI could not understand why I decided to come in as an MD, PhD, and then go for a master's of public health. But that's fine. Uh, during my, my internship or my fellowship, I volunteered with a group in DC called Prevention Works. They've since closed their doors, but they were one of the first needle exchange programs in the country. And it was run by a professor from GW. And I said, wow, this is, I could make a life of this. This is very cool. I ended up not going to GW. I ended up visiting Hopkins and falling in love and moved up to Baltimore to do my master's here. Where do you live in Baltimore? I live in Hamden now. I used to live in Patterson Park. Wow. So you live in Baltimore City, in the city. For a lot of people who don't know Baltimore City, there are very distinct neighborhoods. So Tasha actually lives right technically maybe walking distance of where I live. I guess it's like a two-mile walk, but it's a very... uh, How would you describe Hamden? It is a very neat place. We have a lovely (laughs) downtown area that feels like our downtown. (laughs) What's it, 36th Street? 36th Street, yep. So every all sorts of shops, restaurants, quirky places to gather. It's it's a wonderful neighborhood. We really love it. And it is the home of the Hun Festival. It is the home of the Hun <laughs> Festival. Can you explain what a Hun is? <laughs> Lovely hairstyles. Even in the 2000s, they are rocking their... <laughs> Their hairstyle sometimes, you know, a lovely working class woman who loves her family and her city. Yeah, the Hunt Festival is great. <laughs> oh, it's so much fun. <laughs> and it's about the flair too. It is. Oh my gosh, so much flair, so much pizzazz. My hair salon for the last several years has been the one that does the updos at the actual Hunt Fest. And so I just love watching them. <laughs> How fun. Did you get married in Baltimore too? We had a very Baltimore wedding. We got married at the Star Spangled Banner Flag House, which (gasps) is a small museum many people don't know. I know. I wanted to have our thing there, but they're not holding events right now. I wanted to have Nyla's 10-year anniversary there. So tell the story about the Flag House. It's really amazing. So the Flag House is where Mary Pickering, she was there sewing flags, and that's all I remember. (laughs) She said the flag that was flown in the Battle of 1812, there's a fort in South Baltimore called Fort McHenry, and that's where the British ships were attacking. And the U.S. forces slash the Baltimoreans were able to hold off the British. And that is where someone was on a ship being held writing the Star-Spangled Banner which was set to a famous pub song. So the reason the Star Spangled Banner became popular is because everyone already knew essentially the tune. They knew how the tune went, even if they didn't know the words. So what was COVID like for you? You're this young woman, newly married, new city. Do you have any family in the city? No. And my husband, I laugh, we were living in Montgomery County before we moved up here. He grew up there. and you oh, know, he grew up uh, in Montgomery County? He did. So our, my in-laws still live there. My bro- One of my brother-in-laws still lives there. I convinced him to move to Baltimore. And I said, you know, we'll, we'll do a trial. And we were living with a friend. And he said, no, I like this city. And I was like, okay, let's buy a house. And I said, we can move to Riverside. We can move here. We can move there. He's like, let's move to Hampton. And he was very set on this neighborhood. That could not be more different than how we grew up, probably, right? I know. <laughs> Hamden and Patterson Park, like you guys are hardcore living in Baltimore. Very different than the quiet Bethesda streets of his child. <laughs> Were you able to see his family during COVID? 
We did. So because I was kind of out in the in the front lines running food pantries and big produce drops and parking lots and all that good stuff, um, we didn't see any friends. Um, we were very, very strict about it until like we did see his family sometimes so that we could we could see his family. We we're being very strict. How does it come about your transformation from delivering food to an older population to becoming the executive director of the Cybersecurity Association of Maryland, CAMI, this burgeoning fundamental association. Maryland is trying to be the cybersecurity headquarters of the whole world. How does this even come about? When I first became the director of St. Mary's, the, the old nonprofit, I really needed to find a group of peers, not nonprofit peers, but just regular corporate emerging leaders that were rocking it. So I met a wonderful group of folks and I mentioned to them in December of 2020, which I feel like I was delivering COVID services for way more than nine months, but that's all it was. And I said, listen, guys, I'm I'm done. I'm so burnt out. This is very hard. I'm sick of putting band-aids on bullet holes. I need your help. Help me find a new job. One of the people was involved with Cami. So two weeks later, they forwarded me the executive director job description. Straight to the top. (laughs) They know that I like high stress, not, you know, (laughs) those types of small strong personalities. (laughs) Exactly. They said, well, if you could do that. And they said, do you know anybody who's interested? And I said, yeah, me. And they said, oh, okay. So, you know, they introduced me to some of the board leadership that they worked with in other roles and we had some conversations. I went through the interview process, which was pretty intense. It was about three interviews over, I think, 10 days. And the final one was, you know, present your 90-day plan for this organization you just found out about two weeks ago. (laughs) 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 And then I was offered the position and two weeks later, I was there. You mean there virtually, right? (laughs) There virtually, of course. Yes, here. I was here. I started actually working from home versus like literally up the hill, which is where I was working before. Tell me how you found this group that helped give you this new pivot in your life. What was the group? It was a very informal group of folks in the legal, banking, accounting, VC realm. And I met them through somebody who I did some sales training through. So I was given free sales training um, or sponsored. Yeah, through Geek Dot, through everybody knows, <laughs> right? <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm so excited to give a shout out to Keith Daw. I love Keith. He's a connector. He is. I was sponsored by McDonald Consulting when he was still with uh, Chris and the fabulous group they have down there to do the free fundamentals and then some sales mastery training. They were giving it to nonprofits because they realized that a lot of what nonprofits do obviously is, is selling. And a lot of us are coming from the program side and those are not skills we have. So it was really helpful for me to understand what that process looks like, that there's a science <laughs> to you know providing solutions to folks and learning those skills and the upfront contracts, the sales funnels. It was, it was great. And Keith is a rock star. So he connected me to Eric Rosenberg at Truist. And then we had our little group of many folks. Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority, with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. So Eric was a banker to the players in cyber? Yes. They have some great connections to the cybersecurity community and to Shelly Lombardo at Evergreen Advisory, who's our vice chair at CAMI. Oh, yes. I love Shelly. Describe, Cami for all of those who are not in the know, 
What is CAMI? So the Cybersecurity Association of Maryland Incorporated, or CAMI, was founded at the end of 2015 and was really founded to be an economic driver of the cybersecurity industry. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, we are really trying to be the, the global leader in cybersecurity, which makes sense because of the federal assets and the military assets we have here. A lot of folks leave defense contractors, the military service, or federal service to form their own companies, providing really innovative solutions, not just to the government, to the, but to the commercial market. So we were founded to really help drive those sales. That was our kind of our primary goal for the first three years. We legislated hard. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to say legislated hard, lobbied hard, advocated hard in 2018 to do the Buy Maryland Tax Credit, which was really our, our one of our early claims to fame, which gives small Maryland companies a lot of money, up to $20,000, $25,000 a year if they get their cyber solutions. After we started really pushing the sales, we discovered that cybersecurity companies need more than just sales support, right? So in KME 2.0, we released some of our other communities around marketing, around diversity, to really give our members a way to engage beyond just sales support um, with the community. And then I would say, you know, we're kind of in, in KME 3.0 right now. We're moving fast for a young organization. Um, but we recently announced the expansion of our membership to include not only cybersecurity companies, but those who view cyber as a strategic business initiative. So these could include government contractors who might not define themselves as cyber companies, but are doing this types of work in their day to day and they really care about it. It could be security teams and financial institutions, colleges, utilities, et cetera, or students. So we're really excited about our expanded membership. We've done a soft rollout. We just announced it like less than two months ago already. So that's kind of our, our new big thing. And we also announced our, our centers of excellence, which are our way of realigning the work that we're doing to support business growth and innovation, workforce, cybersecurity talent, and cyber resiliency. What is the scale of Cami? How many companies are involved? Who are some of the big names? Can you give us a sense of what the organization looks like today, the size and scale and the impact? Absolutely. So we have about 600 corporate members and about 80% of those are in the cybersphere. The other 20% are providing services to the industry. And then of those, you know, I would still say our, our core are these smaller to mid-sized companies. About 90% are fewer than 100 staff still. We do have some larger companies that are involved with us. Their security teams, including Under Armour, Purdue Farms, Constellation, etc. So we have a good combination of, of users, of solution providers, and just cool people creating awesome, awesome projects, <laughs> some free revenue up to, you know, 100 million plus in sales. Do you have some of the big names? Is Tenable part of the Cybersecurity Association? We have spoken to Tenable in different ways to get them involved. Um, oh my God, Gulas, Gulas, we need you. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Ron and Cindy are, are good. <laughs> Are, are good friends of our organization as well. <laughs> yes. Well, they can only do so much. They're two people. But for those of you listening, Ron Gula started his career at NSA and then started a cybersecurity product company named Tenable, which has IPO'd and is a very large, thriving cybersecurity company. And he and his wife, Cindy, are very actively involved in encouraging and angel investing or early stage investing in promising cybersecurity companies. So they are wonderful, active leaders in the heart of the Central Maryland location and know everybody. I had the opportunity to meet them at an Evergreen Advisors event myself. And what about IronNet? We have another very large, famous company involved in Maryland. And Ironet is founded by General Alexander, who was the head of the National Security Agency. And he went to found this company, Ironet, which started as just him consulting and now has turned into this 
thriving product and it IPO'd last year, I believe itself. Absolutely. They, they came up in Data Tribe in the little Fulton area. Oh, they were part of Data Tribe? <laughs> mm-hmm. So tell us about Data Tribe too. So that's interesting as well. Data Drive is this fantastic foundry in, in Fulton, Maryland, which I believe is near Columbia. It's such a cool combination of, you know, a Silicon Valley investor and a national security expert coming together to form Data Tribe. Are they active in Cami as well? Yeah, Data Tribe are good friends of ours. We support their competitions every year and they come out and really, they do a really great job at just giving the landscape um, about what's going on in cyber and talking about all the, the great activity that's happening. Who else are big players that are involved in Cami? Is Mantech and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin all involved? So we are figuring out ways to engage them over time because the way the way that the bylaws were written and the way that we had started our engagement, it was really focused on these burgeoning cybersecurity companies. We've been having to do a little bit of, of creativity um, and how to engage and what types of things they'll be interested in. So we know that, you know, workforce, for example, is an issue across company size and especially for the larger folks as well, right? Um, many of them have been able to build their own programs, but still struggle to staff it. So we think that that's a, a great area for us to work together. Well, I like that because companies and organizations need to clearly differentiate. And for a lot of the government contractors who are engaged with specific government customers, such as the National Security Agency, which is based in Central Maryland, as is Cyber Command, which is also based on Fort Meade as well. They are active in other industry groups such as FCA and the Fort Meade Alliance. And so CAMI has to have a very clear value proposition. Why would they come and what is CAMI's unique perspective? Because you don't want to be the same as FCA. You're not started from the organization of marrying government and military together with industry, right? You were started with the premise of cybersecurity solutions, getting cybersecurity across and legislation, which is very interesting as well and having an impact on the larger legislation. I myself, as part of the HubZone organization, it's been very interesting to see that people can actually have laws changed, right? You can meet with your representatives. You can meet with people who are talking to the representatives to explain the problems that exist with the current laws or the barriers that exist to solving this. And at the end of the day, not only does the U.S. government want small businesses to thrive and succeed, but we also want them to not be taken down by attackers. If we had physical shops, we don't want our physical shops destroyed. We do not want our digital assets taken down or our ability to execute not taken down as well. And sounds like Cami is the premier organization to also meet some of these burgeoning product companies as well. Absolutely. There's been some fun um, acquisitions that we've had within our membership, which is always really nice to... (laughs) Be able to make that initial connection. How many? Just a handful that we know of. The MA process is always so secretive. <laughs> so. Yeah. And it's been so active in the last year. Absolutely. There's been a couple of, of these product companies that have come up in the last couple of years that have been acquired. So that's, you know, from an association standpoint, it's super interesting to figure out how to keep people engaged how to engage companies after acquisitions. Um, So I think we have a really good value proposition because we say, hey, you know, you Colorado-based company just bought this Maryland-based company. You might not know the ecosystem. They clearly know the ecosystem if they stay on staff, but sometimes, you know, the founder leaves after six months. We can help be your connection to this local area. I think the founders are also highly likely to start a new company too. Exactly. Right. And which is great. <laughs> they might not have the same piss and vinegar in them that they did when they started the first one. So they need other people to partner with. It's like rocket fuel. It takes a lot of energy to get something up and going. And then once you have a 
pile of money or a cushion, you're not as highly motivated to push through the next product, but you have a lot of value and interest. And so I think that it's a life cycle generation of you were a baby, you grew a product, and now you either sold it to another company or you did a IPO, which would be huge. But then you're going to look for the next generation and you're going to look for ways to collaborate in new and different ways as the world is happening. So right now there is... Russia is attacking the Ukraine, which is actually having a huge cybersecurity impact. What has Cami done or needed to do to help respond to that? We've been big uh, amplifiers of, of CISA's Shields Up initiative. It's interesting. The cybersecurity field is, is so fascinating. It's driven by so many mission-led people who care very passionately But a lot of people are saying, you know, if you weren't doing something six to 12 months ago, good luck. (laughs) When things like this happen, when geopolitical things happen, you really have to start planning for the crisis now. So, you know, we created our cyber SWAT team at the very beginning of COVID, which helps small and medium-sized businesses respond to suspected or confirmed cyber attacks by giving an hour of free services and referrals and such. So, you know, we've been really trying to get the word out about that. We've been pitching to different media sources and just reminding people that we're here, you know, for the disaster. Obviously, we want prevention, but like this is time for disaster planning. If you've been attacked, go to Cami. They will get you started. And if you have not been attacked, can Cami help you prepare of where you need to start? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we could do we could do the simultaneous disaster planning while also getting started on your journey. We can do both. <laughs> I think the challenge with cybersecurity is it's so multi-pronged. It is not just do one thing. It is defense and active monitoring and activity at all times. It's constant vigilance. So it's not just the batting down the forces, but then ensuring your defenses are strong and that you are continuing the education and practice because when people can't see it, they remember to lock a door. It's something physical. Cyber and things online are are more ephemeris. So it's it's training people who are a critical part of your system, such as your finance people or your HR people. So tell us a little bit about CISA. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is a federal agency that has wonderful tips and toolboxes and standards. And it's a great resource for cybersecurity professionals and the public. You know, I think over time, the federal government has also seen the value in in plain English communication. NSA has done the same thing. They have a wonderful collaborative center where they have a lot of really great public-facing information for for not your standard cybersecurity uh, professional. But it's it's a great... These are two great federal agencies that are are supporting the, the field. So we try to, you know, when they issued the threat specifically for CEOs and board leaders, we submitted that to our mailing list and just reminded everybody of the, the things that they can do. And just, we should always be aware, but it's time to be more aware. And CISA is an agency that is part of Department of Homeland Security. When the cybersecurity attack happened where the gas company It was an attack actually on their accounting. So they weren't able to know what was sold and to actually be able to account for it, which stopped all the gas, which almost took down the whole southeastern part of the United States. And then attacks on critical infrastructure such as oil, gas, water, our electric grids. And that is CISA's focus. And National Security Agency is focused on foreign targets and understanding foreign actors such as Russia and China. So CISA is how do we protect the United States and NSA is focused externally. What are the some of the most popular products and product companies out there that are frequently used as part of a multi-pronged approach to securing your digital assets? 
One of the ones that I think has really come up in the last several years is security awareness training. Things like know before and others really try to get your staff prepared for when that phishing attempt comes. (laughs) They know how to recognize it. And there's also a very interesting debate when it comes to the, the human factor of cybersecurity, of course. It's a combination of training your staff, but also making sure that your networks are not overprivileging your staff, that they have access to all these systems they, they don't need to access. Just make sure you have really strong architecture <laughs> when you're building your systems. Yeah, zero um, trust environment. <laughs> Do not trust your people. That's exactly right. Which, you know, gets a lot of pushback, of course, from people who are trying to work hard and, and do good work and be productive. But it is definitely, you know, it does help protect our systems. It's interesting in cybersecurity because it's like every few months there's this new shiny thing, right? So like managed detection response has was sold as a, a service and became endpoint detection response or EDR. And now it's XDR. And how do we how do we put all these platforms together and And I think some of those do have really great visibility into your system instead of having to go to many systems to understand the threats and to understand how you're protected and where you're vulnerable and all that good stuff. But like anything else, if you don't have the people and processes in place to use these products, they're they're kind of useless. Yeah, it's very overwhelming. It can be a a high number of alerts when you don't know what to do or act on it and you don't know what's the first thing to fix. And I think that's even just implementing cybersecurity if you haven't strongly implemented it can can be a large amount of work. Even And it starts with just what do we have, right? What are our assets? Yes. Where are our assets? That can actually be a large amount of work. How do we operate? Even state of what are we doing today? But in defense Absolutely. of those people who are personally insulted by the thought of zero trust and reducing privileges. I will say I have multiple times in my life accidentally left my garage door open <laughs> the sure. entire night, right? So whether you are trained or not, and of course I know to not leave my garage door open, but doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Or you find that you left the door unlocked all night or you left your purse in the car that one time because you forgot and you just ran in to get something. So you can be the best of intentions and have a minor slip. What is Cami's goals for 2022? Launching these these centers of excellence and really getting them off the ground, which again is really just a way of aligning the work that we were doing, giving people easier access points. That's really our, our focus for 2022. We see it really as a building year. So for example, when we're thinking about cyber resiliency, some of the underserved markets that we we look at are small and medium-sized businesses, even though there are, again, to your point, lots of product companies and service companies providing services in that space, they, they might not always know how to access it. So we've been working with different um, associations, different people who have businesses who need solutions. So for example, we did a nonprofit one at the end of March. We're going to be doing a webinar with the Maryland Business Innovation Association in May to talk to innovators, you know, kind of about the whole security by design and don't wait to go to market to make sure your innovation is secure. Um, So doing different partnerships like that and really getting the message across in tailored ways. Additionally, state and local and education or SLED is a big focus of ours for cyber resiliency. We've been really active in Annapolis this year to campaign and <laughs> advocate for the, the slew of cybersecurity bills that some of them are still alive. So that's very exciting. We'll be building up our capacity to be a source of information for those folks too. What are the cybersecurity bills that are in the House of Maryland right now? One that's really still gaining momentum is the modernization bill, which would be a huge infusion of funds to replace legacy systems across the 43 agencies that are using 46 different systems. (laughs) They did a big study at the end of 2021 with some really scary results. So this would be a huge infusion to support that. Additionally, one that might still make it through is a fund for local governments or at least some support for local governments. Apart from state, they're a huge target, as we've seen. Baltimore City was attacked and people were not able to buy houses in Baltimore City. 
And then all of Baltimore City government was starting to use Gmail. And then Gmail shut them down because they were using their like personal <laughs> Gmail instead of paying for Gmail, even though they were using it for work. And you literally could not buy houses because Baltimore City was attacked. And then I think it was Baltimore County schools had a cyber attack. I cannot believe they attacked schools. And what data are they getting from schools? Not only was it bad enough that the kids had to go to school during COVID and try to deal with that adjustment, but then there was a cyber attack that was pretty significant on Baltimore County schools as well. So God bless you, Cammie. (laughs) And then hospitals too. Hospitals are an attack zone for cybersecurity bad actors. Absolutely. Huge attack service. So many IOT devices. So talk about, uh, you know, asset inventory. It's, it's a lot from schools and hospitals really. So we are out here trying to, to be a a good source of information. And those folks are are understaffed often. Their, Their security teams are strapped. We talk about hiring challenges in the private sector and, you know, you talk to our local CISOs and our state CISOs and it's tough. Also, the maturation isn't there yet. So you don't know who to trust. You might have a small budget, so you can't go to a large trusted consultants agency. So you're a small business and you need help and you're trusting another small business and they haven't been around long enough yet to know if they're trusted or have reviews and it's a lot of information of where to start and the cost. And the question is, is, am I building a barbed wire around my house where I don't need to? What's the right level of protection that I need? It can be, I think, extremely overwhelming and I'm in it every day. And it was still a lot to modernize my system. And also the challenging too is some of the literature still goes to defense and assuming that once you're inside, you're safe. And moving Mm. to the way that data and systems work today, which is a lot of companies don't have their own router. Their employees are working from home with their own routers. So small businesses often do not have their own private network inside a building. And they don't have software that is sitting inside their building on their own private servers as well. They're relying on their business running using software as a service. So Microsoft 365 is software as a service. Salesforce is often software as a service. Slack, which we have a lot of information in, is software as a service. Our QuickBooks is software as a service as well. And so some of the literature and change hasn't addressed the fact that these small businesses, which you said make up a huge portion of who needs to be protected, have a very, very different architecture than a bank. Yes. Which is established and has its cybersecurity practices built in, and yet they need the support. So God bless you, Cammie, for being out there. (laughs) That's That's really, you know, where we see it. And, you know, from the workforce side, our big question is, what are even all of the jobs? And it sounds so simple, but, you know, a lot of these big, like CyberSeq, for example, fantastic platform. If you look at the national database, you can see that Maryland has, you know, 20,000 open cyber jobs on any given day, but those are in cyber and in IT companies. Those aren't including, and again, these hospitals and local and state government (laughs) in all of these things. So we're really focused on driving into what does that look like at our state level and really getting some good demand side data on that. So that's another 2022 goal. So it sounds like your job is trying to eat the elephant. And you have a very upbeat, positive attitude. And I can't decide if that's because you're young or (laughs) they're like, let's pick a young woman who's still got, who's still going to be excited every day. That's right. (laughs) How do you decide what the priorities are and how to spend your day and all of the resources? Wow, that is definitely resonating this morning. It's a huge field with lots of needs. So we really try to carve out areas that we feel are are a good place for us to thrive. You and I talked earlier about what makes us different, right? What makes us unique? So I try to spend most of my time in building that up for these, you know, cyber resiliency for those underserved markets or a lot of us have workforce committees, but like what what does it... And we really decided it was the data. That was what our workforce advisory board was telling us. So yeah, just trying to figure out what people are doing, how we can best 
support their efforts or if it's something we need to start building ourselves. And then once we do that, we we try to bring in those early adapters, our, our big champions, and, and try to go from there. How big is the CAMI board? We have 26 members, and that includes four like non-voting ex officio and then 22 voting members. So it's it's a good size board. It's not the biggest, <laughs> but they're a very active board. All board members are expected to have a couple areas or at least one area that they champion either through committee and community service or through, you know, different initiatives, etc. How long is the board service expected to be? So we have two-year terms, maximum of three terms per person. And who is the president of the board? Our current chairman is Chris Sachs, the CEO of ThinkStack. And how long has he been the president? He has been on the board for about three years and he's been the chair for about three months. For other executive directors listening, what do you recommend for engagement with the board? How do you successfully leverage your board and then take direction from your board as well? The thing that's always worked well for me is having these standing meetings because everyone is busy. So it sounds really like boring and logistics, but that's that's really been a good place for us to get together on a regular basis to make sure we're all on the same page. And then I would say for me, it's really finding out what those board members, where their strengths are, what they want to bring to board service and trying to kind of orchestrate all of that so that we're working together. That's really your role, I think, as the executive director with the board, like certainly to take direction, to take feedback and to make sure that you're driving the strategic mission. But then at the end of the day, the logistics, making sure we're all we're all working on the train together. And that really, because it's a volunteer position and they have many things that they're trying to do, it really works well to let them drive what that looks like, you know, provide guidance, provide some guardrails. But at the end of the day, you don't want to make square pegs fit in round holes with volunteers. It just, it's not going to work out well. Yeah, you have to leverage what they're what they can do in their sleep. Exactly. How has being not just an executive director, but an executive director for the Cybersecurity Association of Maryland, what impact has that had on your life? I now do get a lot of questions from my mom and my family and my mom's <laughs> friends. You know, is this right? Am I doing like what else can I do? So it's it's been good, you know, using password managers, all that good stuff. I'm having a blast. I may not have come up as a technologist. I came up in the life sciences realm of things, but it's been so fun to work with really smart, really passionate, mission-driven folks. I'm not studying for my CISSP yet. I don't know if I ever want to be a technologist, but I love talking about it and thinking about it. The other thing that I always tell people is, you know, I came from this from a user point of view too. I was in clinical research and community health and that in between stage and HIPAA was our, our ride or die. <laughs> and I had to tell the FDA because we were under a, an investigative new drug, you know, protocol, for example, I would have to tell them anytime we sent an unencrypted internal email, it was a lot. So I became hyper vigilant and trying to get that, you know, message out on the end user side and it's been fun to see it from the side. You have a great perspective of the people that a lot of your product companies are trying to sell or influence and understand that market much better than they do. They know of the problem, but they don't understand the thoughts or concerns of the buyer or the implementer once they're inside. And you have that great perspective. Plus your love of research, you must never stop reading in this job. There's so much for me to learn. (laughs) And it's never going to end. As long as you're part of CAMI, cybersecurity, digital architectures, the paradigms that we're using, they're always going to change. The threats are constant and very significant. I think I found my home. I've like bounced around from like human services to health (laughs) to whatever research. And I like tech. I think it's my new home. Yeah, well, you look very happy. I know this is a podcast, but it's 7.30 in the morning, which is normally when she wakes up, and she is glowing. (laughs) She's been smiling and glowing this this whole chat. (laughs) What advice do you have for people getting started? 
I think that, and even my own experience as a young person, there was a lot of pressure to make the right decisions and go down the right path. But the great thing specifically about cybersecurity is there are so many ways to this industry. And really, it's about finding things that you're interested in, like following those passions and and just talking. Like, don't, there are so many, again, I cannot reiterate how just generous I have found this field to be. There are many people out here who want to help you join the field and become a contributing member here. There's great organizations like Cami, like WESIS, like a bunch of other wonderful cyber things. Just come out like Blacks in Cybersecurity super awesome things come out, learn, even for beginners. You know, I think there's a lot of, again, overwhelming. I was not a technologist. I was overwhelmed, but there are so many cool entry points if you know where to look for them. And we're happy to help you find those. What questions do you have of mentors? Like what's something you want to know? I am coming to the age um, where I'm going to start having a family. And so I'm noticing myself, I've, I've been obsessed with work for the last decade I am trying to figure out, you know, I'm going to go very personal for a second. I'm trying to figure out how to make that work. So I am surrounding myself by women who I really admire, who are raising families and have awesome careers and just trying to pick their brains. How many women are members of Cami versus men? What's the gender makeup? They estimate that the industry is probably 20 to 25, but I think we have an overrepresentation of either women-owned small businesses or women technologists. I would say we're closer to like 30, 35, which is still small. Tell us a little bit about WESIS. So Women in Cybersecurity, amazing organization. They have affiliates all across the country. We have the Mid-Atlantic one here, as well as the Critical Infrastructure chapter here. They do super awesome events. We're going to be partnering with WESIS CI, their critical infrastructure, this summer. I always applaud them because they always have events for, again, these entry-level folks. So they'll have hackathons or CTFs, capture the flags, and they'll say, like, hey, you don't have to have ever done this before. Like, we're here to go through this process with you. I've never done a capture the flag. I would love to. Oh, right? They seem so fun. (laughs) The nice thing about that, I think, for you is Almost all the women I know that are involved in WESIS are married and mothers and very intense about being a mom. Like they're a mom and they're also super, super into their careers. And they use this analogy when you have a second kid is when you have your first kid, you think you can't love anything more and that you have no room to add something else into your life. But I think you can have a child and you can work and you can love both and you can thrive. And it's not an either or. And it seems weird that you could add something big in and do both, but you can. You will never lose your love of learning and engaging and wanting to help. That is a huge part of who you are. And you will have that and your child goes through phases and your career goes through phases as well. But you can actually be super, super into your job and super, super into being a mom. The other thing is you need help. You get help, right? And it also depends on your spouse. So like this morning, I said, Brian, I got to do this podcast. He successfully got both the kids up and out the door. So it seems like it can't happen because your job is all consuming before you have kids, but somehow it just works and you're able to do it. You will figure it out and you'll figure it out quickly. Plus there's tons of working moms around to help you guide that. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I believe in working moms. My mother was a big advocate of women working and I never felt that if I worked, I would not be a good mom. And so I think I'm a good mom. My son's a lover and he always tells me what a great mom I am. So (laughs) are there similar organizations like Cami in other states? Or is this the first of its kind? You know, we have not found folks who try to bring together education for like small businesses with training with economic development. We have, we have not found this triple threat organization to compare ourselves to, but we have uh, lovely partners who do a little bit of each. 
I think that's a good opportunity for you for 2023 is to create a franchise-esque model for other states, similar to what WESIS has done. We want it not just in Maryland, but we want it throughout the state so you can be the founding organization to encourage other states and start with Pennsylvania and Delaware. They're right there. And Northern Virginia would be all over this. So you need to go meet some people in Northern Virginia. Absolutely. And it's interesting because, you know, we, we've we actually opened up our membership to include companies that are based elsewhere and just doing work wherever. So we have like Indiana, Pennsylvania, New Mexico. <laughs> it's great. People are not afraid anymore of the Maryland. But yeah, that's a, that is on our roadmap. What book have you read personally or professionally that's really impacted you? I'm a big audiobook person. So the last audiobook I listened to was Finding Your Unicorn Space, which was all about building creative time into your life. And it was actually super interesting because it related to the last conversation about how to navigate that with a spouse, with family, and how to just carve out that time and how, for example, many divorces come about because people don't carve out that time and don't talk about it with their spouse until they realize, oh my gosh, I need this. And then they panic and they get a divorce. It was really good for me as a a reminder about communication, about finding that love for what you like to do, whether it be dancing or creating in other ways. Um, I think mine is probably dancing, not formally, but, you know, exercise-based dancing (laughs) Um, and just finding room for that. So yeah, it was, it was a cool read. Please tell us something about yourself that might surprise us. I've like been finding my my adventure journey in my in my adulthood. So I started snowboarding when I was like 29. I learned how to scuba dive when I was 30. I started running marathons, you know, when I was in my late 20s. So when I was young, I was like obsessed with learning. So as I've gotten older, I've I've done other adventure things and I'm I'm having a blast. What's next on your list? Oh, that's a good question. CISSP. Um, <laughs> no, no, right? CISSP. No, I, I, <laughs> I'm getting into biking. I want to learn how to be more of like a distance biker and like really lean into that lifestyle. I could talk to you all morning. I really appreciate you taking the time at 6.30 a.m. to get up and get the squeakies out of your eyes and uh, <laughs> and and chat with me. It's been such a pleasure to learn more about Cami. And all the wonderful things you've done, and especially that you have a advocacy portion, which I think is very different from some of your other organizations, such as FCA and Fort Meade Alliance, which isn't as focused on changing laws and, and doing mm-hmm. advocacy on behalf of your members. But thank you. I am so excited and energized as well by cybersecurity based on your energy. I love it. I was just going to say, I love how our headshots were wearing like a very similar color blue. It's like, oh, yeah. It's very beautiful. <laughs> it's very beautiful. It's our company color. It's your Nyla blue. I can come get my CISSP and I can come join your team. <laughs> wear my Nyla blue. It'll be great. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again, and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.